2: There we are, City Limits. We're on the air and it's the third Wednesday of the month. That means it's our normal housing day and we've got a number of housing stories this morning. Meg Kimber just turned us on. Morning. I'm Kevin Healy and it's, uh, as we say, it's City Limits and uh, I'll pour some tea while chatting away here in the background. I mean, I won't oh. be, I'll be talking in the foreground and pouring in the background if you can follow what I mean by that. And um, today we're, we're going to open up um, the show in about um, 10, 15 minutes. We're going to talk to... Uh, Susan Motherwell, who's a woman from Sandringham, who was one of 109 objectors to a um, big overdevelopment down there. At, uh, and ironically, if I got the figures right, there are 109 objectors and the address of the place was 109. Whether they decided mm-hmm. to stop at 109, I've got yeah. no idea. But anyway, we got, they, they actually, a month or so ago, had a wonderful victory because we all re- regard VCAT as just a rubber stamp for developers. But in this case... Uh, they knocked it back, and in fact, they knocked it back originally. It went. It was appealed to the higher court, sent back to VCAT, and this is the final decision. So, uh, Interesting. Yeah, so we'll find out from Susan how they went about it and uh, what the campaign was all about. Yeah. And how big the overdevelopment. And mm. uh, and in our uh, housing segment, we're going to be talking to. I'm going to give you a cup of tea. Do you want a cup of tea?
3: Yes, thanks very okay, much, there
2: Kevin. You, oh. That's very nice of me, isn't it? And <coughs> <Yes>. uh the... <laughs> gonna... If you do say so yourself, <laughs> That's right. yes, it well, is. No one else is going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be talking to Ruben Endine, who's a worker with the Housing for the Aged Action Group. We haven't met before. Wow. I think he works there on mostly um, IT stuff, but um, cool. he's going to come in anyway and talk to us. And he'll be talking. And we're going to be talking with him at the same time. With Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing, just right. to update us on what's happening in the public housing area and uh, yep. and particularly the takeover by um, by big business of public housing estates. So mm. we'll we'll catch up with all that in the course of the program. And the uh, Ruben's going to talk us tell us about what he does at um, at Housing for the Age Action Group. So there you are. That's cool. a nice program, eh? Mick.
3: Um, I have a couple of bits of news. Yes. <laughs> One is a big thank you to all of our listeners who donated to Radiothon because we reached our target
2: yeah, and I gave fifty more dollars in this morning. A friend at lunch it's, it's, um, me out the front Gab was just laughing at this because. A woman who's been coming. We have a we have a, dr- a lunch once a month called the Drunks' Lunch. Oh, okay, I, I, that's right. right. I was like, did um, you
3: accidentally say drunk then instead of lunch? But no, you yeah, meant to. It's great, <laughs> right. um,
2: the uh, which which isn't as bad as it sounds, but it is it is a pleasant lunch, and we drink drink some nice wines, and we there's a, there were about thirteen or fourteen turn up last week. They just come in dribs mm. and drabs. You never know. Last a lot Friday. Of it's once a month on the second Friday, and it's open house, so people turn up. But a woman, woman
3: invitation co- for everyone listening there. That's right. Yeah. A
2: woman called Cheryl. He's been coming for about three or four years, or maybe more now. Uh, last Friday, gave Jan. Bartlett, $50 for her program and $50 for City Limits. Wow. And we got here to get receipts and we both realised we have no idea what a surname <laughs> is, what a second name is. So we've been having lunch with her for four years. She's only Cheryl.
4: No one knows her second name. We'll
3: just have to but put anyway. her down as Cheryl. <laughs> That's right. And then in brackets, <laughs> drunks, lunch. But
4: we'll, we'll get that and catch up. And, yeah. uh, and thanks to her
2: anyway because um, – yeah. and we have. It's great that we have. And thanks to all the listeners, seriously, who got yep. us there because uh, it is – so important, not just for city limits, but for 3CR generally. Yeah, we and if you make. listen
3: to any other 3CR shows and you want to support them, it's a great time, still time to do it because we haven't met our target for the station yet. So, although we've met our target for our show, but we're still fundraising for the big target.
2: Yes, so there we are. Yeah. Um, there was a story last week uh, floating around about um, pine and... Um, Pine and Julie um, Bishop both getting jobs in yep. areas where they'd worked before. Yep. But Julie is um, – she she says she's meeting all the requirements because et cetera, et cetera. But it's interesting, the Palladium mob she's with, which gets lots of money, which is mainly our aid money, yep.
1: uh,
2: is an international company. It's And the board meeting she's going to go to will be in London. Mm. Um, but it um, – it says uh, here in the story, Palladium has a distinctly Australian tinge. Executive Chairman Kim Breadbower is Australian, and others, other directors include Anne Sherry, Chief Executive Chair of Carnival Australia, and John Eales, former rugby captain and business director and consultant. This reflects, this is the interesting bit, Palladium's origins in the Kerry Packer Empire. Mm. involved in agricultural exports in the 70s but then moving into humanitarian work and a management buyout in the 80s. Humanitarian work for which it gets paid very heavily, of Mm -hmm. course. That has since expanded into a global business that also includes strategic consulting and capital advisory work as well as hundreds of development projects. Um, And... Uh, Brad Bauer says Palladium had long admired Bishop's work as a minister, revolutionising the foreign aid sector and is delighted to become her first private sector directorship. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. Her commitment is tapping into private sector expertise mirrors our own as we develop new and innovative ways to tackle problems of social and economic inequality. Aren't they good people? So
3: the thing was Mm. that that they've basically privatised foreign aid.
2: That's right, and that's right.
3: Sold it up, like sold off the delivery of services to private organisations, exactly. and this is one of them. That's right. And now within how many months of being out of...
2: Uh, about two and a half weeks. <laughs>
3: <laughs> They're working.
2: <laughs> Give or take. What
3: was the article that you saw? Because there's... Um, Hannah Orby, who's been on the show is launching a new centre for – it's called the Centre for Public Integrity. And it was mentioned Mm -hmm. in one of the articles – and the article that addressed some of this stuff about how there's no federal body that basically keeps a track of these kind of things that that politicians do or ex-politicians do. So it's actually being launched today. Oh, very good. She, of course, is
2: the woman we've spoken to who wants to have a federal um – a federal corruption commission. commission, yeah, yeah which we're, there is
3: anti-corruption, isn't. perhaps, yeah, yeah, um, and just to look at like confidence in in the integrity of the of the public service and, and governance and and politics, which is you know at an all-time low.
2: Well, they want to. They they one of their aims is to um, I'm pleased to hear this sustainable solutions around the world. Much of its funding comes from the US International Aid Agency as well as Britain's Department for International Development and the EU, along with sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East.
3: This is Palladium.
2: This is Palladium.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but Julie says, um, she says her first um, post-politics private sector career, or beginning her post-career with a board appointment to the giant thingo consultancy, um, is wonderful because she. Great, I've long believed the private sector is the key to lifting living standards and economic development. Oh, so Lord. that's why you give them all that money.
3: Oh, yeah. yeah so I it's, do that. It, it raises some people's living standards.
2: It certainly yeah. does, <laughs> including Julie's. Yeah. Didn't go back to her law where she uh, worked for the asbestos industry, but anyway. Um, and there was an article in the Saturday paper last week uh, about the fact that that Pine and Bishop had got their, you know, gone straight into those consultancies yep. with areas that where they worked. But more importantly, it goes on to point out the extraordinary amounts of money that the big four accounting firms get off government as consultancies. And you yeah. know, the whole thing being the other side of that of course is the public servants has been run down. Yeah. There's public servants who could do that, but they're actually yeah. paying billions and billions of dollars to these people. Uh, massive amounts of our public money. And, of course, they're going to come up with not solutions that are good for the country, but solutions that are good for the private sector in themselves. They're not going to give advice the public service might give. Yeah, They're going to give the the advice that the private sector thinks is good for the private sector.
3: Yeah, I think it has to do with um, sporadic block funding. I don't know whether what it's like in the public service, but in other areas that are publicly funded or government funded, um, you just... Organizations don't have they don't have like long term security of of funding so then they might just get a special a grant or you know a special block of funding and then they can pay for you can't pay to employ someone really, but they can play, pay for a consultant. But, of course, the consultant yeah. costs twice as much as just employing yeah. someone. Yeah. But somehow this has sort of happened hand-in-hand hand with all this casualization. You know, I think it has to yeah. do with, like, there's no security of tenure for a lot of Im- employees. No. Yeah. And, and yet contractors sort of move into that space and charge a lot more. Mm. And on the sort of assumption or, you know, appearance of increased uh, ability on their part... When there are people who could do that work and could be in That's secure right. employment, if the if the funding was there, if the money was available,
2: it's based on that false philosophy that led to the privatization of assets, etc. That the private sector can always do things more efficiently than the public sector, which yeah. is absolutely if crap, you
3: pay them a lot yeah. more and they they That's work. Right in less time i don't know yeah
2: well also of course if you privatize something to the private sector then it it, it's it's aim is to make profit so yeah the public with the public sector doesn't have to and so it's it's inconceivable that they could do it cheaper unless they are extraordinarily more efficient and they're not yeah Uh, so so that takes care of that
3: (laughs) We've sorted that out. Yeah, they've sorted yeah.
2: that out. We mentioned last week with Helen the fact that Essendon Airport wants to narrow the runway so they can got more buildings there. Mm. And um, the, uh, trans- the, the Australian Transport Study um, Bureau has ruled the, the – or well, that's that crash last year. But the, the pilots have come out and they say it's highly dangerous. Um, of course, Lindsay Fox and Max Beck uh, – Fox, of course, the big um, trucking Transport, magnate. Yeah. And, and Beck, who's a big developer – uh, they they own it on on, on lease uh, for ninety nine years or whatever, and
3: it's not really used. Is that right, or what is it? Oh, used it's used. For? It's
2: used for light planes particularly, okay. and um, and country planes come in, etc. It's quite. Right. He, it's very heavily used. Oh, okay. But um, they and they had that crash there last year when it ran into when a plane crashed into the buildings. The um, oh. when on the edge of the freeway um, oh, taking off, the, right. that, that plane went down. <clears throat> um, but. Um, pilots have come out and said this makes it even more dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. But that won't put them off. But the other thing, in terms of just mm-hmm. absolute arrogance in dealing with the community, they also they also now want to um, they they want to reject development plans and force people to add noise control features such as thicker insulation, etc by putting a um, putting an overlay over over properties near the airport. So there's properties now around um, Strathmore, Strathmore Heights, Pascoe Vale, Bray, Airport West, Essendon, Essendon North, Mm. where they now say they want to put an overlay and that would control planning of those houses. Mm. And the speculation is this will mean a a massive loss of uh, property values for those homes in those Mm -hmm. areas. Just for the airport, because they say the master plan forecast flights to and from Essendon Airport will increase from 52,800 and something in 2017 to almost 60000 by two thousand and thirty nine with louder twin turbo aircraft to rise from twenty to forty percent of all flights oh. and so this overlay is to force people to add noise control features thicker insulation double glazing etc um, and it's just yeah. uh, it seems to me just extraordinarily arrogant that a you know a couple of propertyers can simply order around what people can do
3: um, and previously the, it was the onus was on the airport to reduce the impact on the
2: well, yeah, it was, it was owned President's by the – it was publicly owned. It was Melbourne's airport until Tullamarine opened in 1972, I think it was, or oh. 71. Oh. Um, and, um, and, in fact, the weekend it, it it closed and Tullamarine opened, we actually went to Sydney, a couple of us, to on a p- political thing to do with the socialist left at the time. And uh, we flew out of Essendon. When we got back, we flew into Tullamarine. <laughs> and our, and the, my mate's car was in Essendon. So um, we... Uh, yeah, well, you guys picked a good day to travel. That was the weekend. So it was around <laughs> about that time, um, 70, 71, 72, when we were doing that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so... But uh, anyway, that's... But it does think, you know, that they should be... Knocked on the head. <laughs> now we you know Michael Hill. It advertises on telly with all this jewelry you can buy, and it's always oh, yeah. you can save Lovely. hundreds if you buy their jewelry. Yeah. You, know? it's like, you
3: could wear it to uh, the cup or whatever. That's right. Yeah. That's right.
2: I, I've found ways I can save two thousand at a time. I've seen stores. Uh-huh. I've seen stores um, advertise men's suits worth four thousand for two thousand. Now there's two thousand in my kick immediately. Isn't yeah, exactly. It? In You've the kick of the suit virtually. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. So, this is a way of doing it. But anyway, they're facing a $10 million to 25000000 million, it's got to be worked out, um, loss of profits because they've got to pay workers.
3: Um, it's awful, it, yeah.
2: It's always yeah. the problem, isn't it? It is a problem. Yeah, I mean, um,
3: a lot of the articles that you bring up are
2: <laughs> facing a theme. Well, well, there's more to come. They, <laughs> they, they, they reviewed their paying and they discovered that they've been underpaying workers for years. And they reckon they overpay. The company has now begun a detailed review of the rosters and payments to more than 2,000 full-time, part-time and casual employees going back six years, which is expected to, to take three to four months. It'll take about that time to work it out what they owe them. Yeah. But it could be anything from tw- ten to $25 million they actually owe work. That's astonishing, isn't it? Wow. And it just, they said they just misread the... Um, the award, they you know, they thought they were paying the right right award, but it was just misread. They, oh, look, but look, it it's sort of, so
3: easy to do, you know. It is. We, we've yeah.
2: mentioned before, we've never seen one yet who's misread it and overpaid the workers. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Well, not yet, but I'm sure it's happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, um, I wouldn't be that sure. Yeah. <laughs>
4: <Not> <laughs> no, no, no.
2: Hang on, I'm going to sip it to you. And uh, you'd be pleased to know... The bloke who they've made, the latest senior trained killer we've got, um, Angus Campbell, who's head of defence force, he's the bloke who used to stand behind beside Dutton and talk about pushing boats back and keeping people out of co and then treating refugees with great disdain. He's warned us that climate about climate change, which is good, isn't it, he's suddenly seen climate change. Oh. Yeah. But his his concern is his I concern. Feel like there's a twist. There is a twist. Yeah. His concern is not actually climate change, but the impacts of climate change that will force many Pacific islands to become vacant, and China could move in. Oh my god! So we have to beware of China moving in to empty, vacated oh. Pacific islands that have been vacated because climate change forced the population out. Wow! Oh, he's a great little thinker, Angus. Yikes! Yeah. Which means, of course, because uh, I'll finish up on this, but I, I wasn't. But our prime minister, of course, has been invited to Washington for hot dogs with or whatever he's going to have. They're when Howard when, really well. when George W. invited Howard, I think they had hot dogs, so he might get hot dogs. Yeah, you wouldn't want it. Imagine hot dogs and Trump in the same thing. Pretty true. Mm. But anyway, um, he says what a great thing it is. It's absolutely wonderful. But I, you can lay odds that Trump's going to urge him one to be much stronger against China, and two. To guarantee that Australia will support America in invading Iran if it mm. does so, and uh, and even mm. send troops, etc. So, yep. and it's speaking disturbing. of Trump, I don't think there's any need to talk about Trump. Is there this week? I mean, he's blatant mm. racism, etc. I mean,
3: I mean, one of the things is that um, you know he loved what Australia, the way that Australia has treated people seeking asylum. Yes, that's and right. it's no wonder, but it just does go to show um, what. Politics in Australia has (coughs) gotten people to sort of agree to, I suppose, for this government being elected back in because our border, you know, stopping people at the border is what Trump is trying to do and can't successfully do Mm. because of the outrage in America and around the world and yet somehow our government has been doing that for Mm. That's what, right. 10, 15 years? Although he's know. doing
2: it fairly well on the Mexican border, I well, must Well, he's admit. trying. He's, he's doing his best. He's, and it's he's really a, a
3: yeah. play out of yeah. Australia's playbook. So yeah. we have yeah. nothing to be proud of there.
2: But given he said they, went to, they came from such dreadful countries and shameful countries, and he, you know, those dreadful descriptions he gave of the countries they came from they should go back to, and given the countries they came from in three of the four cases was actually the United States – and you could argue he gave a pretty good description of his own country. <laughs> he might he might have great self-awareness.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Might. Fine. Okay, let's take a break. We'll get talk a bit of sense with Susan Motherwell.
1: Don't panic. There is a planet B. Come along to a sparkling night of progressive comedy at Green Left Weekly's annual comedy debate. Join Masters of Ceremonies, Rod Quantock with Sean Bedlam, Duff, Fiona Scott-Norman, Hellchild, Kirsty Mack and Tom Tanuki. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged and $12 Concession. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Friday the 26th of July, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Don't panic, there is a Planet B, a fundraiser for the radical newspaper Greenleaf Weekly. Bookings are essential. Phone 9639 8622 or go to trybooking.com forward slash BDHTX. Greenleaf Weekly is a 3CR supporter.
2: Sue Motherwell on the line as that fades away. And um, Sue was one of 109, I think it was, objectors to a development in Sandringham um, in the last, what's been going for a year or two or three now, I think. But uh, it reached its conclusion in VCAT a few weeks ago and... We've got Sue on the line because it's such a rare situation where developers can actually can actually lose a case at VCAT. We've always been highly sceptical of VCAT, but anyway, uh, Susan, um, tell us something about the background of this and how you got to this stage.
5: Well, hi, Kevin. Um, lovely to talk to you. Looking um, in mid two thousand and eighteen. Well, sorry, in, in early two thousand and eighteen, the property across the street from me, which runs from. Um, Vincent Street in Sandringham, right through to Abbott Street. So there was one large house there with a pool and tennis courts on the back of the block. It went up for sale. It was purchased by a developer. Plans subsequently went into council in mid-2018 for a vast development. So this uh, particular zone is the NRZ3, which is the uh, Neighbourhood Residential Zone. This is one of the highest zones in Victoria and many municipalities will have that zoning. But it really can restrict what can be built there in terms of density and and style. Um, so we when the yellow sign went up, I looked walked across the road, looked at it, and then went onto the council website to have a look at the plans and see what they wanted to propose to do and then realised shock horror. Um, they were wanting to put up what really was apartment blocks, but they were calling them townhouses, and they wanted to put um, a long block of six down one side of the block and a long block of six down the other. So it really looked like two toilet blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and how
2: many floors was it just ground floor? It's
5: two floors. Two it floors. was 12 dwellings in total, so six down one side of the site and six down the other side. Probably an average of four maybe... mum perhaps four or five bedrooms in each. So you do the max, and we came up with something like 70 to 80 people were going to be living in there, Mm. which is absolutely outrageously high-density in an area that's not zoned for it, Mm. in a design that, that is not in keeping with what's in the rest of the municipality. Now, it's a large block, and we always knew that it would be developed, and that's not a problem. We were just concerned about what they wanted to develop. So... Look, that's pretty much the background. And, look, when I saw that, I I thought, oh, my God, this is terrible because it will set a precedent. If this goes through in this suburb, it will set a precedent for what other developers will do because it would reduce the size of each unit or each dwelling. So, look, I letter dropped um, from one side of, of, um, of Sandringham to the other. I stood outside the station. I stood outside the supermarket handing out brochures, urging people to... Um, put an objection in, and luckily they did. Um, and then there was a uh, public meeting called by the Bayside Council in the um, um, middle of, of uh, last year to talk to the residents, and that meeting was quite vocal, extremely vocal. And I think the, the um, Bayside Council realised that the residents were very angry about this and didn't want it, um, et cetera, et cetera, Um, long story short, council refused it. Mm. On a number of grounds, quite lengthy grounds, quite specific grounds, grounds to do with not fitting in with neighbourhood character, um, you know, parking setbacks, drainage, site coverage. It was... It was one of those things where it's pretty standard what developers do. They will ask for things that are just a little bit mm. above what they should. Mm. So he wanted to put in, you know, a fence that was going to exceed one point two meters in height. So really we're looking at a gated community. Yeah. The site coverage, you know, you're only allowed fifty percent. He was going to do fifty five. Mm. So there was a variation of five. Um, there was, diff- you know, setbacks were slightly here, So it was like pushing the envelope, yeah. pushing the They boundaries. always
2: go that ambit claim and they've always got the, what they really want in the bottom
4: drawer, mm. of course.
5: Exactly. Um, but he and that's regarded to... as
2: a compromise.
5: That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, mm. look, we ended up at the conciliation meeting at VCAT. Um, he said he wasn't prepared to compromise. Um, he put in slightly revised plans. We had to go back to council. We, you know, as a group... You know, like this is war and, and really people who are going to fight developers have to understand this is war. You can't sit on your hands at meetings. You know, you have to have a plan. You have to lobby your neighbours, as many people as you can to put objections in. You have to lobby all of your councillors. We pay their, their, their salaries. You know, they're our elected representatives. We want them to look after our interests. So, um, look, we ended up at VCAT and for five days. Um, as a group, we all chipped in $20, $30 each or whatever, and we hired a town planner to help us. Mm. Um, The council sent um, a barrister and a QC at our urging. Um, And because it was such a big development and the ramifications for it going through for, you know, Bayside and what development could go ahead were big, so the council pulled out the big guns and um, went through the hearing Um, Six weeks later, we got the news that VCAT had refused it. So Mm. I think, you know, there were so many little things wrong, but when you look at all the little things and the variations that were wanted, um, it it was just not going to work. Mm. So we were very fortunate um, and we got a very fair hearing at VCAT. And look, you know, I understand what you're saying because I used to think that too. Oh, you know, people don't win at VCAT. And people used to say to me when I was letter dropping... Um, And, you know, we formed quite a big group of people and had regular meetings. Oh, you know, no one wins at VCAT. But, look, people do win at VCAT, but you have to be prepared to put in the effort and, yes, it's war and Mm. you need to be organised. You know, you need to look at your options in terms of what professional help you can get. um, Did the developer
2: appeal, by the way, Susan?
5: Um, Well, no, because this is the end result. When you go through um, the council and they refuse, developers, as a matter of course, go to VCAT, roll the dice, hope they'll win. Um, And after that, they really have only one option, that's to go to um, a higher court in Canberra and try and get the decision overturned. So what he needs to do now is, I guess he's got a couple of options, he could sell that block and move on and leave it to someone else to do something with or he can start all over again with you know Mm. a new set of plans put a new yellow sign up you know go through the process again but he will then have to address 27 pages of a VCAT decision about why they refused it so Mm. he will need to look at that and redesign and come back with something that will be more acceptable um you know, probably less on the block.
2: Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, the other point you raise, of course, is about the council. in this case hired the silk and the junior.
5: Mm-hmm. But
2: um, but in many cases when they don't do that, it's up to the community and it becomes quite expensive now at VCAT because you've really got to have a, a planning planning silk, basically, to, to argue your case.
5: Well, you do. And, you know, the thing with going to VCAT is... When developers are refused by the council, the developer takes the council to VCAT and we as objectors go along for the ride and it, does, it costs us nothing other than chipping in to hire some professional assistance. Mm. But we, it was important for us then when the developer said he was going to go to VCAT that we then had to lobby the council and say, look, you've refused it on quite strong grounds. You need to follow through with this. and you know, at one of the council meetings in February, the planning committee meeting, the councillors were vehement in their, their anger at what this developer was wanting to propose, and they were really committed to fighting it. But, you know, we put a big effort in for three or four weeks lobbying the council, email and ringing, going to see them, asking them to come and look at the site to see what it would look like, um, really, really lobbied them, and so you know, by the time it got to that decision stage at that council meeting, they knew that they had a lot of, you know, voters and rate payers. A lot of
4: community support. Mm.
5: Absolutely. And, <laughs> or or you know, people it's... are
4: going to vote, so they better do something about it. Yeah.
5: <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, but people do win at VCAT and um, you've just got to fight and fight for your suburb. And... And look, what I say to everyone is when you're out walking or driving around your suburb or whatever and you see those yellow planning signs go up, you've got to go and look at them. You've got to go onto the website, look at the plans and see what the, is being proposed. And get it, get it
2: explained to a lot of people to look at the plans and don't really understand exactly well, what they mean.
5: Well, you just make an appointment, you go yeah. down to see the council and you ask them to explain it to you. That's their job. Yeah, That's yeah. the planning department's job is to advise people about what's going on. But you can't ignore them. And I think... This is what's happening. People see signs go up and they think, oh, yeah, you know, we're never going to win. Council mm. will give it approval. But that's not true. We all have to take responsibility for our suburbs and we have to be prepared to stand up and fight back as a community. And, and you know, talk to your neighbours, do a leaflet drop, have a couple of meetings at your house and you'd be surprised. I mean, I was very, very surprised and 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 thrilled at the amount of people who were very, very angry. And I think... This is what's happening in the community now. You know, people are angry at what is being done to their local communities by developers, you know, with or without council approval um, or council support. So I think there's it's a good change. There's a change in attitude and people power does work and, and is now a voice. I mean, we vote these people in um, and they know that. So, you know, you've got to use that that leverage and really, really lobby hard. Um, But people power works and we have to fight for our communities to save them. And, look, development's going to happen, we understand that. And, you know, the state government gives councils guidelines about how many new dwellings have got to go up to support a growing population. And that's fair enough, but that development goes in the appropriate zones, you know, around activity centres like shopping centres or stations mm. or on, you know, main roads, but not on quite suburban streets. And um, so,
3: in this instance, Susan, you had the support of the council. What if they had thought that it was an appropriate development? Would there have been any recourse for the community then?
5: Yes, yes. Well, we would have gone to VCAT. That's right. your option. If council supports it, yeah. then the developer still goes to VCAT mm-hmm. and we, as a resident group, we go to VCAT. So then the nice. cost then is different. You, we've got to then pay for that, you know, a barrister or a QC or a town planner, whatever people can afford to chip in for. So yeah. that's why it's important to make sure you get your council on site and, and fight hard to to get them. And, you know, I know in our area, we, our council has met 80% of of state government guidelines for new housing, but it's in the appropriate zone. So, mm. you know, you, how how is how can it be right for, you know, developers to come into our areas and, and want to put up more and then, you know, move on? They don't live here. Mm. They move on and we're stuck with it. We're stuck with the increase in traffic, with all the parking, you know. So...
2: Yes. I don't know. It's, it's a great. It's a great victory, and it's ironic, of course, that when VCAT kicked off, and I think it was under the Hamer government, I can't remember. But mm. what what became VCAT was kicked off as a non-cost, no-lawyer's yes. jurisdiction in mm. which uh, people just got together and sorted out their problems. But of course, over the years, it's developed into what has now become a very expensive place to take your case.
5: Ah, uh, it is. And that's, you're right. It started off as, as you know, a much lower level and you know people getting down and looking over the plans and, and sorting it out in a gentlemanly way. But then, you know, it's all about greed really now and squash as many as you can on a block and make as much money as you can and then move off. And, and, look, what they were going to do would have been dog boxes. And from our perspective, we were thought, well, who would want to live in those? Mm-hmm. Some of those rooms, you know, were so poorly lit for passive lighting and solar energy. Um, who would want to live there? It, you know, you'd have to have the light on all day. So we just want stuff that's properly designed, you know, appropriate for the area. You know, we're not asking, no, we don't want it all go away, Um just something that's more appropriate for the people who have to live in there and for the people who have to live around it. So we just wanted a compromise. But it's tragic Mm. that you have to go through this huge legal process to Mm. just get a compromise.
2: Sue, so is it a pure coincidence that um, the address was 109 and there were 109 objectors?
5: <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't spotted that. Well done, Kevin. Yes, well done. But, you know, it's great because um, that's really – that all those people and more who, who, you know, gave support but didn't necessarily put in an objection but may have put in a statement of grounds for the VCAT hearing mm. – um, you know it's great, it's a great way to get to know your community, and you know I had people coming up into the supermarket hugging me oh. or stopping me in the street. I didn't know these people other than they were oh, I objected, mm. you know so it's been really, really good for that community. you know we know each other, we look out for each other, our network has has increased. So it's been really good that we all look after each other and look out for each other and care for our community and, and that's so important in this this day and age where people become isolated and mm. communities become fragmented. So it's nothing like a, a bit of adversity to draw people together and and then, you know, to keep that, that friendship, you know, to keep that group going to, to look out for each other. So, mm. no, it's been... Look, you know, I, I might be telling a different story if we hadn't won, mm. but we were lucky to win, but we fought for it, and that's the key. It's war. It's really war, and that's how you have to approach it, I'm afraid.
4: There's absolutely no doubt you'd be telling a different story if you hadn't won. <laughs> but, um, yes. Susan, look, thanks for your time, and congratulations on all that. It's just uh, it's very rare we have a positive story on our housing day on this program, so uh, oh,
5: we've, we've kicked
4: mm. off with a positive story, and congratulations on all the work you've obviously done personally on that. It's just oh, great look, news. Big
5: team effort, you know. If we hadn't have got all those objections in the beginning, we wouldn't have got to where we were and where we finished up. So, you know, I just say, put an objection in. You know, you know, if if no objections are received or if less than three are received, council gives approval. Mm. You have to put an objection in to slow the process down. Mm. So, put an objection in. Right.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wise words. Okay, Susan. Look, thanks for your time this morning, and congratulations again. Thank you very much. Okay. Lovely to talk to you both. Thanks, thanks very much. Susan. Bye. Okay. Susan Motherwell
2: there, who was – well, she obviously was the leader. She got got out and did the the hard work, the ground work, and got the uh, whole thing done. And it's it's
3: so true about bringing community together um, and in this instance for a very good cause. And if there isn't a good cause – get together with your community and have a cup of tea or, you know, plant things in the nature strips in the garden or have some kind mm. of communal project because um, it doesn't only have to be in instances like this that we know our neighbours and, yeah, yeah build a, community in and the And developers suburbs.
2: are amazing. I, there was a developer built put in McKean Street, North Fitzroy, a huge block and wanted to, again, overdevelop and tear down a beautiful old house. And we, we, had, I was in Fitzroy Council at that time. We knocked it back,
4: mm. and I
2: was chairing the building and permits committee. And the developer had a private meeting with us to try and talk us into it. And their architect said to us, "But it's council's responsibility to get get my client out of a financial problem." Really? And I said, "I said, no, it actually is not your problem. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> you, know, well, you might I mean, need but to they check with That's right. The council's role was to save them from losing money. Oh. For God's sake. Anyway, I hope they lost a lot of money on that one. <laughs> um, we'll take a break, come back, and we're going to talk to our next two guests, who are Howard Morosi and Ruben uh, Endine.
3: And that was. Um Old Fitzroy by Dan Seldon. I'm really sorry to fade that. I'm sorry. If Dan's listening, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but I'll play it again at the end, so we should right. hopefully get the whole song there later. And then but... Joe can fade it. Um... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Re-
4: Reuben Endine's in the studio. Reuben, welcome. You're, um, it's the first time you've been in here, but you're, you're a, one of the current
2: workers at the Housing with A Action Group. Yeah, good uh, yeah. Communications Cassians worker, right? Terrific. And uh, on the line, we've got Howard Morosi, who gives us regular updates on what's happening with public housing, in particular. He's with Friends of Public Housing and other groups. But uh, Howard, um, update.
3: Are you there, Howard? Howard?
2: There he is. Yeah, Howard. Oops, he comes. He he was on and went. Are you
6: there, Howard? I'm I'm here. Kevin's cutting out a bit. I can hear you quite clearly. Oh, you were
2: cutting out as well. Must be something. Okay, let's keep. Let's hope it's going to go okay now. See how we go.
3: Hmm. Interesting. Sorry, I'm not sure what's happening with why you can't hear Kevin. But um, can you hear me? Yes, we We can can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Maybe just give us an update, Howard, about what's happening with the public housing at the
6: moment. Sure. Thanks. Okay. Well, uh, the struggle goes on. Uh, there's been a fair bit of media in the age recently. Um, we had the Lord Mayor uh, telling us that there's now been a large uh, homeless centre open for youth in Melbourne City Council. Um, so it's uh, <coughs> a centre for two thousand young people, twenty-four hour crisis centre, uh, and the Ottenham House Centre in Flemington Road is soon to be reopened as well, which is all good. Um however, of course, <clears throat> she failed to state the obvious which was the need for public housing. Mm. Um she advised people to buy a copy of the big issue if they want to help. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. So again, a golden opportunity for uh, a politician to put some pressure on the government and she failed to do so. Um <clears throat> there's also an article about um a group in Heidelberg West. Yeah. Um Again, it's it's only. I mean, they're helping 16 people temporarily. West, the
2: Heidelberg one was interesting. It's next to a public housing estate anyway. There's four homes there. Um, but the, the story I found interesting said that they could stay there temporarily. Uh, if the council owns it, why, why can't they stay there permanently? Can, can you understand it?
6: Yeah, the council bought What happened was the council actually bought the properties because uh, they're right next to the um, state government's plans for 10-storey towers so no one wanted to live in the houses and for some reason i don't know why the council decided to buy those houses off the residents and then they were planning they're now planning to bulldoze them and sell them off for, for private development Um, So I don't know how that's going to solve the problem, given that it could end up being another large high-rise story and then it pushes the problem onto the next resident. Mm. But that's what the council decided to do. Mm. And uh, what happened was one of the um, local activists, uh, what's his name, Uh, Brother Harry Prout, a community worker, um, got the locals together and um, raised something like $40,000 uh, we've got about 60 people involved in volunteering on fixing up the houses or donating goods and they've managed to find 14 people to move in there temporarily. So it's a good yeah. news story but again it misses the main but point. But they're,
2: they're band-aid you know. solutions aren't they? There was another story You're in the Age recently also about precarious lives of women over 55 and the story we know well about know women in an age group who haven't got much money and who end up in a difficult situation with housing but again They say the solution is ultimately, they keep calling it social housing still, but again, the solutions they often put forward are just band-aids again.
6: They're all band-aids. And the the sad thing is that you've got 60 people just in one location who are so concerned they're willing to give their time. If they knew the political uh, situation and they were politically educated to a just a small degree, we could have a really strong campaign much stronger than what we've got now. If we had that that size of uh, activist group in every location which is being affected by the project, you know, instead of having half a dozen people, if we had 60 people, you know, the sky'd be the limit in, in winning this campaign. So, again, it just illustrates how hard the struggle is. We're not giving up, of course. Uh, we've, we've got a couple of rallies coming up. The defendant extends got a rally next Wednesday, the 24th, and again on the 31st outside state parliament, 5.30pm to 6.30pm. As well as that, um, the Save Public Housing Coalition and uh, the Darabin Community Friends of Public Housing (coughs) is mobilising people. Uh, We've got a meeting coming up this Saturday at the All Saints Church um, to talk about what's going on. The government's planning some info sessions about three of the um, estates that have been developed. That's Northcote, North Melbourne, Preston. Uh, Those are coming up. Um, and we're planning to um, get people down to the meetings and hopefully give the government some some tricky, tricky questions and, and build up the campaign a bit more that mm-hmm. way.
2: When are those uh, sessions? Are those sessions on shortly or...?
6: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Northcote is the 29th of July, so... Um, if I can send the information through to Meg and she can put it up on the web page for city yeah. limits, that'd probably be the best way to
3: do it. Yeah, mm. we can add that to the podcast for people who podcast or um, look on yeah. the website. Yeah. Yep.
6: Yeah. Right. Beautiful.
3: Because of the meetings, at where are the meetings located to um, talk about those specific?
6: So the North Northcote ones at Northcote Town Hall.
3: Right. Yeah.
6: Um,
3: so it's that kind of thing. Yeah 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 we can put uh, the details up for people who are listening Yeah.
6: yeah i yeah, will put the link to the the government uh website
3: as well ideally they're the i think part of the thing is that people don't think of it as their um problem so to speak, if they live in Northco and they know that the um those h- houses are being vacated and and demolished or whatever redeveloped um they might think, oh, it's not my problem, but um, people kind of need to, like we've seen with Susan, get behind their local community and do what they can and, and make, it of in, like, make it their problem in a way, really.
6: Yeah. yeah. Well, the good thing was that uh, there's one of the um, local residents from Northcote, Nick Legg, who did a very good article, which was published in The Age, mm. which did talk about public housing and mm. the problems with the public housing uh, renewal program. Mm. Um, and Nick is, is, has become very active. Um, so we do have a nucleus of, of good people in the Northcote estate. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, so uh, the thing is, when people realise that the scale of the developments, uh, for example, the Walker Street estate um, development is eight storeys high. A number of blocks are going to be eight storeys high. Um and and people like Nick are actually concerned not just about their own uh, amenity but also about <clears throat> the fact that the public housing tenants, or the current public housing tenants, are going to be shoved into the worst building uh, with no view, uh, an eight-storey building and very little access compared to what they've got now. Um, so, you know, there's all those things which local people aren't, you don't really, really realise the extent of the impact. Um, if, you're not, if you're not looking at the plans, you don't realise the extent of the impact until it's actually built. Um, so we're trying to get people in, informed about what's mm-hmm. going to happen and hopefully that'll motivate, motivate people to get to get involved. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. The other side of that was a story in the Herald Sun, a front-page story which led to an inside coverage um, a week or so ago about public housing tenants in a public in a private apartment building, but there's a number of public housing tenants in there as well. And they were complaining about the terrible way these people were treating the other people and how frightening it was for the private tenants that these public housing people were there. And did you pick up that story? It was a well, typical you know, Herald Sun beat-up. I, I
6: can't... Fair to read the Herald Sun, so you I'm you brought to my attention. <laughs> well, I bore um, it. <coughs> yeah, again, it's not surprising. It, it's the um, the sort of angle that the Herald Sun and the commercial TV stations tend to run about public housing tenants. And of course, there are problems. You know, unfortunately, because of the fact that the government has has dwindled the supply of public housing uh, and made it a crisis type accommodation you have a higher percentage of people with problems. Mm. Um, But, you know, not not every public housing tenant is like that. And uh, there's lots of great community activity on public housing estates. Um, And, you know, lots of people get very well educated there and behave properly as well. But the Herald Sun chooses not to um, talk about that.
2: Mm. Yeah. Ruben, you any thoughts at this stage? Uh well, well whole, I think the like the, the issue
0: that came up in in the Herald Sun the other day, I did read that article, and it, it just shows like that the the government has has this, has this argument that they're going to be creating a mix of uh, private and public housing tenants, and that this um, salt and pepper style development that they call it is going to have all these you know positive impacts and and stop people living in ghettos that they that describe public housing currently as, mm. but. We we can see from every angle, from from their from you know from these sensationalist beat ups that we see in the Herald Sun, but also from their own research that they've done into the previous developments in, in Carlton and, and Kensington, that there is no evidence that there is this kind of uh, positive um, social mixing. That it's actually creating more of a kind of a ghetto experience for people where they're living rather than in their own people's own estate where they have their own community being kind of um cordoned off into you know separate buildings into into the uh the least desirable places within these mixed estates mm. yeah
3: mm. and it's a mm. it's a it's a kind of a patronizing ideology as well that if you just spend time with some people who have more money than you or something like that that you're going to some kind of positive things going to off on you when you
0: went... it will trickle down on yeah it's the <laughs> yeah, <a> trickle
3: down <laughs> <laughs> well, and as howard
2: said it's going to be they're going to be up the back somewhere as it, as at the Carlton one's a classic example where the public sector is way over there or away from the good private people and and of course the other side is that these are public housing areas now being run by private by private development companies i mean that's that's the worst part of it anyway but uh, yeah.
3: yeah and you have to be pretty naive not to see the benefits to commerce basically in this in this setup to to be able to take public housing land privately develop it and then um have uh, you know not a non-government sort of agency look after it so yeah every yeah. everyone else kind of wins there But
2: we talked about the big four companies taking over the public service early in the program yeah that's mm. right exactly howard any more updates
6: that's pretty much it, actually. OK, yeah.
2: well, look, we'll move on to Reuben and find out what he's been doing um, sure. in the few minutes left. But thanks for your time this morning, and we'll talk to you again next month. Yeah, See ya. OK, thanks, Howard. <laughs> Howard Marossi there from Friends of Public Housing. And Reuben, um, your main job there, you say, is um, IT, etc. Tell us about what you do and how it relates to the work that Housing with the Age Action
0: Group does. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I do a bit of IT and communications for, for, for HAG. And I think there's a
3: little bit of a difference there between IT and communications. Yes, there is. There <laughs> Kevin, is. Kevin's a man without a mobile phone and the, without an email address. But, so, but,
0: <laughs> but uh,
4: yesterday I was told that you were the IT man. But anyway, communications. Well, you're doing a good job in communications this morning, anyway. Well, good. we have, a, we have. A,
0: I, I think that you know, in my role, I guess I like to cross over between the two. In that, um, you know, like community organisations like CAG, we we run uh, all kinds of very diverse projects. Um, you know, as well as being um, a service provider, we're also very much a campaigning organisation. So these things do cross over a lot. And, you know, we have a lot of just some sometimes unusual things that we need to do. Uh, like, for example, I, I was originally employed to create a, a research library of all these kinds of research that we were talking about before of, you know, um, what works for older people in housing from all around the world. And so you know, we we built that library a couple of years ago, and now it's it's grown to be a really big resource with with probably uh, six hundred different resources specifically on the topic of older people and housing. But yeah, we're very much at the you know we can't just uh, say well there's all this research and point to it, and the government does its own research and then completely ignores mm-hmm. uh, its yes, own findings. Yes. So mm. uh, well, you know, we also very much need to be an, an active campaigning organisation and. Mm. And keep talking about public housing and putting public housing on the agenda.
2: From around the world, interesting stuff. So, I mean, there's been campaigns and like street protests in Germany recently because they've been trying to change the whole rental situation. Have you been following any of that? Because they have a very much a rental mentality in, uh, mm. and, and, and interesting laws around it in Germany. But the government's trying to change it. But people have been taking to the streets to protect what they've had for years. I haven't been following that, sorry Kevin, but I I think
0: we do have to be aware in Australia, you know, we take it for granted that, you know, that this is just how it is, the private rental system, but Mm. you know, really in Australia, it seems like we've, we've got it pretty bad Mm. and you know, it, uh, the, the kind of private rental situation, the cost of living is, is really comparatively very high, you know, compared Mm. to most, um, places around the world and, you know, in Victoria we have a small difference with 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 most of the rest of the country, in that we do still have some of these public housing uh, assets still in public hands. In in most other states, there have been a lot further along the road to privatisation. And in Victoria, we still have this, so it's it's definitely something that um, we need to defend. And mm. like. Uh, Joe Toscano says, also, oh, we need to extend mm. it. Yeah, mm. that's
2: right, that's right. Yeah, Miller's point in Sydney is a good example of what mm. you're talking about. I mean, it, it was saved by the green bands and, and the union green bands in the 70s, uh, but in the last few years, the government's been selling it off. And it's beautiful public housing, right on the, you know, right on the bridge, right on the rocks. Um, glorious area for public housing. And the argument for the government is this will give us money to buy more, more up, more public housing. But that's going to be out in the far west or far east of Sydney somewhere. I it think it's it's,
0: it's shocking what's happened yeah. there because because of the the um, heritage listing of the building, they've actually evicted all of the last re, uh, remaining old, very elderly tenants who yeah. were mm. in that building, and. They evicted them, uh, I believe it was four years ago and they still haven't uh, sold or made any mm-hmm. um, profit off this building, which was specifically designed for, for public housing tenants. Mm. and you know with the idea that public housing tenants you know don't need to be living in in ghettos or, or mm. what, what you call them in, in the fire areas that, that public housing tenants do deserve a great place to live. Mm-hmm. and that building was designed with that in mind. But I think that the current attitude of the the government is that is really that yeah like we can't be rewarding people with, who living in public housing with you know with nicer real estate. Mm. Yeah, Ruben,
2: we'll get you in again because we run out of time. Mm. Uh, but look, that was great and. Um, You've you've done your job, and, uh, and in fact, you've done <laughs> your job so well. we have got to get you back again. So, good <laughs> look. Thanks for coming uh, nice in, Raymond. Okay, and, and thanks to um, Howard for coming on, and thanks to Susan Motherwell. We've had an interesting program as well. Yes, indeed. And next week's a uh, fourth Wednesday of the month, and guess what?
3: I've no idea what's happening. Neither have I. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's it. It's so going to be a complete surprise next, to everybody. Next week's a total no idea program,
4: <laughs> which is people, might think, people might think is normal for this program anyway. <laughs> uh, and we better go now. All
3: right. We'll finish with uh, Dan Sultan singing Old Fitzroy.